Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. New York City can be a harsh place during the winter. In January of 1915, the residents complained bitterly about the relentless blizzards and ice. To combat the weather, the mayor hired snow fighters, men who worked in shifts to keep the streets shoveled. Snow fell quicker than the men could shovel, though, and the freezing sleet that followed made travel hazardous, if not lethal. News about the war hadn't helped morale. Typhoid Mary Mallon had recently broken quarantine to resume work as a cook, causing outbreaks across the city. And, as bad as all that sounds, things were about to get worse. Frederick Moores walked into the police station and calmly announced he'd just murdered eight people. At first, the officers thought they'd misunderstood him. Frederick Moores wasn't his birth name, he told them. He'd changed it from Carl Menerich. He chose Moores because he liked the Latin phrase memento mori, which means, remember, you will die. He chose Frederick for its root words meaning peace and ruler. Moores told them he was a medical man, or at least that that was what he wanted to be. He'd found a job at the German Oddfellows Home for the Elderly in Yonkers, where he earned $18 a month plus room and board in exchange for helping to care for the 350 residents as a nurse. The job offered him the chance to practice medicine in peace. Though he worked as a nurse, he insisted the residents call him Herr Doctor. At this point, police called in a translator, certain this man who was admitting to murder and calling himself a doctor and peaceful ruler of death had a language barrier. It all sounded bizarre. The translator assured them they had heard correctly. Moores explained that he had wandered the halls wearing a white coat and stethoscope. The superintendent had asked him to hurry along with the deaths of the home's sickest and most costly patients, a task Moores felt was beneficial. The patients were old, and he believed it was kinder to kill them than let them linger. While he'd initially decided on arsenic, he found that death was messy. The victim suffered for several days, becoming violently sick in the meantime. After spending days cleaning up after the arsenic victim, chloroform became his poison of choice. In his own words, using the drug on the elderly was like putting a child to sleep. The police investigated the nursing home. Residents and staff alike told them they didn't like or trust Moores. He had a short temper, and any resident not on his good side died shortly after any disagreement. One employee stated he had walked in on Moores and the superintendent as they stood over a body. When he asked why the room smelled oddly sweet, the superintendent lit a cigar and Moores opened a window. Neither man answered the original question. While prosecutors had a confession and testimony, it wouldn't be enough to convict Moores or the superintendent. 
Patrick Reardon, the city's coroner, insisted that testing for chloroform was impossible, though other coroners and medical professionals disagreed. Reardon refused to exhume any of the bodies, and without testing, the district attorney didn't have a case. With at least a confession in hand, Moores was admitted to Bellevue for psychiatric evaluation. From there, he was moved to the Hudson River State Hospital for the Insane. The district attorney felt at least Moores would never be free to harm anyone again. Until the day that Moores walked out the front doors, never to be seen again. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. The scandal hit New York City in 1915. A local political organization, Tammany Hall, had long been a source of widespread corruption, from rigging elections to placing certain people in unelected positions. New Yorkers weren't particularly surprised when the story hit the papers. Of all the job positions crooked politicians negotiated and promised, coroner didn't immediately come to mind. Yet there was money to be made in the recently deceased, and in certain investigations, it paid to have autopsy results show certain outcomes. The city paid out over $172,000 a year to its coroners and their assistants. Many not only drew a nice salary, but they also earned commissions. Hiring corrupt staff who performed certain favors came with an additional cost to taxpayers. Coroners often billed the city twice for the same body. And few coroners were as corrupt as Patrick Reardon. He had once been a doctor, but lost his license for frequently being too drunk to practice medicine. Lucky for him, the dead rarely complained. That didn't mean that journalists, the DA, and the city commissioner weren't wise to Reardon's antics, though. He had been the reason Moores and the superintendent at the local nursing home had gotten away with multiple murders. Reardon had a habit of showing up to tragic accidents so drunk that he needed his assistant to hold him upright. Such was the case on December 8th of 1915, when a train slammed into the back of another car waiting at the station on 116th. When Reardon saw the bodies, he made a single comment, that the names of the deceased were hardly distinguished enough to warrant anyone coming out on such a miserable night. City Commissioner Leonard Wallstein was, at the time, the bane of Tammany Hall's existence. He released a lengthy report on the state of the city's coroner's office, particularly Reardon. He pushed for reform that would require a qualified and licensed doctor to head up the coroner's office. Unfortunately, nothing changed. Reardon remained in charge. Wallstein worked with local journalists to raise the alarm again, this time printing a story that drew national attention. They alleged that Reardon had performed illegal autopsies since he wasn't really licensed. To stop the embarrassment, the governor insisted that Reardon be fired and that a qualified coroner be placed in the job instead. In a childish fit of anger, Mayor John Hyland made sure the most qualified candidate did not get the job. Instead, he hired the second most qualified in the hopes that the new coroner would fail. The mayor soon regretted his decision. Dr. Charles Norris had been educated at Columbia and Yale. His father was a merchant banker, and his maternal grandfather had been the president of the Bank of Commerce. The family had a history of being hardworking and patriotic, traits Norris inherited. 
He was a large and cheerful man with an oversized mustache and a lively sense of humor. He didn't need that sense of humor. While the mayor remained determined to keep corruption front and center, Norris cleaned house. As the new chief coroner, he hired an exceptionally talented chemist from Columbia University named Alexander Gettler and a brilliant doctor from Harlem, Thomas Gonzalez. Together, they whipped the medical examiner's office into proper shape. Unhappy that the men had made such progress, Highland slashed the budget. Undeterred, Norris fought for better pay and working conditions for his staff. He also insisted on proper procedures and the use of standard scientific investigations. Norris tasked the chemist, Gettler, with inventing new tests for elusive poisons, a challenge that the new chief toxicologist settled into with ease. Outwardly professional, to the point that one journalist labeled him as interesting as table salt, Gettler was anything but. Highly competitive and outgoing, he had an unquenchable love of chemistry. Like his boss Norris, Gettler had a strong work ethic. Unlike his boss, Gettler, the son of poor Jewish-Hungarian immigrants, didn't have family money. He had worked hard to put himself through college. Outside of his job, he spent his time at ball games, bowling, and cards. Both men were well aware of the medical examiner office's corrupt history, and that the mayor had it out for them. The public also had a distrust of the office, and the science behind it. Even though the men had come from opposite social and economic circumstances, they were in step with each other and had great plans for the future of criminal science and pathology. Norris and Gettler not only began building an efficient and effective office, they carved out their reputations in a new field, forensic medicine. Though Gettler was dedicated to his job, the mayor's budget cuts meant he had to work outside the department to pay the bills. He alternated between teaching as an associate professor at New York University and as a chemical pathologist at both Bellevue and Allied hospitals. Though it would have been easier to accept bribes, Gettler's moral compass was as strong as his work ethic. Confident in his skill set and his lab's equipment, Gettler refused to alter his testimony or his chemical analysis. However, by 1923, one woman would cause him to doubt himself. Mary Frances had dark hair, expressive eyes, and a rosy complexion. She married John Crichton in 1919 when she was 21. The newlyweds quickly moved into his family home, a large two-story house in Newark, New Jersey. Mary had grown up poor, while John, the son of a prominent Pennsylvania Railroad Company executive, was accustomed to the finer things in life. Neighbors had always liked the elder Crichtons, but they didn't think much of their son's new bride. Mary didn't get along with a lot of people, including her siblings, with whom she had fought over their parents' meager will. She wasn't social. The couple had no friends to speak of, and Mary had never gotten along with her in-laws. Neighbors often heard Mary fighting bitterly, with her mother-in-law in particular. In 1920, John and Mary had their first child, Ruth. That same year, the elder Mrs. Crichton died of food poisoning. A year later, Mary's father-in-law died of a sudden heart ailment. John didn't have any siblings, and the couple inherited everything. Three years later, they welcomed an infant son, John Jr., Neighbors had noticed a shift over the past couple of years. 
Mary, who had never been friendly, was now downright rude and combative, and she complained about everything. Well, everything except when her 18-year-old brother, Raymond, came for a weekend visit. Mary convinced him to stay longer, and even found him a job in a local store, sweeping floors and stocking shelves. In April of that year, Raymond went to a doctor, complaining about a dull ache in his abdomen, having a constant thirst, and a dried-out tongue. Thinking the young man had an infection, the doctor prescribed a tonic. A week later, Raymond returned with additional symptoms, a sore throat and nausea. On the 20th, he suffered a seizure. When the doctor arrived, Raymond was shaking violently and vomiting uncontrollably. Within minutes, he was dead. The doctor didn't understand what had happened, but thought perhaps he'd died of a severe case of gastroenteritis. Not long after Raymond's death, a letter showed up at the local police station, calling out the unusual deaths at the Crichton house, starting with Raymond. The anonymous sender stated that Mary was a killer and that the detectives should investigate. While it certainly didn't constitute proof, the letter convinced detectives to talk with Raymond's doctor, who, by now, had also had second thoughts about the cause of death and about Mary's involvement. He remembered Raymond complaining about his sister's insistence that he eat chocolate pudding every day. The owner of the store Raymond worked at had seen Mary show up at the store if Raymond forgot to eat his pudding and made him eat it before she left. Believing Mary might have poisoned the chocolate pudding, detectives searched the house. They found a bottle of Fowler's tonic, which promised translucent skin with its rich arsenic formula, and they arrested Mary on the spot. The coroner's office ordered Raymond's body exhumed for a more thorough autopsy. Meanwhile, John and Mary hired James McCarthy, the best defense attorney in the state. The lawyer told the press that the Crichtons had been in shock at Raymond's passing. McCarthy suggested that Raymond must have taken Fowler's tonic himself. He presented a strong case of how readily available arsenic was to the public. It was in practically any store. When the jury returned a not guilty verdict, a journalist noted Mary's quick smile before collapsing into her husband's arms. Though acquitted of murdering her brother, detectives arrested Mary once more, this time for the death of her in-laws. The case drew so many onlookers that pathologists had to perform the autopsy's graveside. While the older Mr. Crichton showed no signs of arsenic poisoning, his wife, Annie, did. A nurse testified that Mary adamantly served her mother-in-law hot chocolate every day. McCarthy called in Alexander Gettler, as well as other prominent pathologists. Gettler determined the levels of arsenic were too small to have caused Annie Crichton's death. Instead, he found traces of bismuth in a prescription of Annie's. He told the court that she had probably died from mixing medications, not from arsenic poisoning itself. Mary Frances grinned at the prosecution as she walked out of the courtroom. A free woman, once again. Charles Norris was tired. Ten years of running the department and fighting corrupt politicians had taken its toll on the usually cheerful chief coroner. He had fought against ignorance and corruption for so long that the murders, poisonings, and other deaths practically ran together. He had also poured a considerable amount of his own money into the department for equipment. What he got for his efforts was an accusation of embezzlement. 
The new mayor, LaGuardia, believed that all mayors who had come before him and their employees must be corrupt. Though a thorough investigation showed the coroner had put money into the department instead of taking it out, the accusations took a toll on Norris. Even after returning from a long overdue vacation, he had little of his old energy. On September 11th of 1935, he died in his bed. Ruled heart failure, friends and family said he'd worked himself to death. Thomas Gonzalez took over the office. Gettler stayed on as the chief toxicologist, and life went on. Two weeks later, a case came into the office. 36-year-old housewife Ada Applegate had died after a bout of vomiting and stomach pain. Her doctor had initially thought she had a gallbladder attack and had hospitalized her. She got better, until she returned home. A few days later, her husband, Everett, called the doctor again. By the time he arrived, Ada was already dead. The doctor's notes about the manner of death were one thing, but there was a name connected to the case that grabbed Gettler's attention. Mary Frances Crichton. As it turned out, the Applegates had moved in with the Crichtons after both sides had fallen on hard times during the Depression. Twelve years had passed, Ruth was now 15 and John Jr. was 12. Unease and guilt washed over him. Certain Mary had gotten away with murder before, he wasn't about to let her get away with it again. Gettler notified the police. The detectives ran into a snag, though. Ada's husband refused to allow the medical examiner's office to exhume her body. When they told him that in cases where they suspected homicide, they'd get permission with or without him, he finally relented. Gettler found that Ada's organs were full of arsenic, three times the lethal dose. Given Mary's past and Everett's reluctance to exhume his wife's body, the two were arrested for murder. Detectives suspected an affair between the pair and questioned them separately. Everett laughed them off. He told them Mary hadn't aged well. He described her as having a frog-like appearance and a mean streak a mile wide. He told them to ask anyone in the neighborhood about her. Still positive that something was going on, the detectives dug deeper and discovered that there was an affair. They'd just had the wrong partner. 36-year-old Everett had been sleeping with 15-year-old Ruth. When the trial began in mid-January of 1936, he testified that his wife knew everything and stood in the way of him marrying Ruth. They'd been fighting over his relationship with Ruth one day when he slapped his wife. Ada threatened to expose his secret. Angry had knocked her to the ground. The only one in the house who hadn't known about the relationship was John. He worked so much that he was rarely home. Mary admitted that the house had become too crowded. Thinking her daughter would move out if married, she strongly encouraged her daughter to sleep with Everett and tracked her menstrual cycle to prevent pregnancy. Everett told the court that as bad as it looked, it had been Mary Frances who'd suggested murdering Ada. It had even driven her to the store to buy rat poison. Mary said that while she had bought arsenic, she'd done so at Everett's request and hadn't given it another thought until detectives questioned her. She also insisted that while she had fed Ada milk and eggs, Everett had handed her some powder to mix in with them. She told the court she had no idea it was rat poison. The jury didn't buy the blame game and deflections and found them both guilty. The court scheduled Everett and Mary to both die in the electric chair on July 16th of 1936. Everett insisted he was innocent to the very end. Mary didn't handle it quite as calmly. 
and she claimed she could no longer walk and had to be wheeled in. She clutched a rosary tightly in her hand, saying she'd recently found religion and had prayed to God to help her. As the current coursed through her, the rosary beads flew from her hands and scattered on the floor. Arsenic had been what pathologists called a first-time poisoner's choice for a reason, availability. In fact, death by arsenic had been incredibly common for a very long time. The French even had a nickname for it, the inheritance powder. Arsenic was everywhere. Its green tint went into dyes for wallpaper and cloth. Every store sold rat bait and pest control laced with arsenic. It could be found in creams, ointments, and medications. However, it had a drawback. Being metallic in nature, it was easy to trace in the human body. The first tests for arsenic poisoning were developed in 1830 and only grew more reliable over time. So why did first-time murderers use a poison that could be traced so easily? Arsenic mimics symptoms of several long-term illnesses, fatigue, nausea, cramps, dizziness, and disorientation, to name a few. This left many poisonings undetected, at least at first. The problem was that murderers often returned to using whatever worked for them in the past. Gettler suffered extreme guilt after seeing Mary's name in Ada's death report. Detectives launched a second investigation into the murder of Annie Crichton. Gettler was relieved when further tests showed no signs of chemical poisoning. But the investigation did uncover that Mary had poisoned and killed someone else before, her brother, When confronted with the evidence before her execution, Mary admitted to the crime, stating she was surprised she had gotten away with it. She hadn't used the Fowler's tonic the police had found, she'd left that as a decoy. Instead, she'd purchased the pesticide Rough on Rats, the very same poison she'd bought to kill Ada Applegate. When she had finished, she smuggled the wrappings out of the house and disposed of them elsewhere. When asked why she'd killed her brother, Mary smiled and said it was for the insurance money, roughly $1,000. Frustratingly, though, at least for her, her legal fees had taken most of it. It's clear that Mary had fooled people before and believed she could do it again. But she hadn't planned on Gettler looking into the poisoning after the last trial ended. And she certainly didn't know the effort Norris and the team had put into furthering forensic science. And all of that ended up foiling her plans. They had presented enough evidence and conducted their testing so professionally that Mary didn't stand a chance of slipping through their net. The case against her was airtight. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Their courtship spanned eight years. Charles Webb tried to get Gertrude Gorman to commit, but 40-year-old Gertie had never been able to make decisions regarding her life. The only daughter of a very wealthy widow from an even wealthier family, Gertie's relatives weren't keen on Charles. While she found the 50-year-old quiet and soft-spoken, they remained suspicious about his motives. It wasn't a secret that Gertie's mother was terminally ill, after all. Ever the dutiful daughter, Gertie stayed by her mother's side until she passed away in 1920. Then, without her mother to care for, Gertie and Charles spent more time together. Two years later, they finally wed. Charles promptly moved into the Madison Avenue home Gertie had shared with her mother, much to the dismay of the rest of the family. The newlyweds took a series of short and elaborate vacations together and visited friends. For ten straight months, it looked like pure wedded bliss. But by September of 1923, Gertie was dead. Her uncle, William T. Hunter, immediately called a press conference, he stood in his garden, surrounded by reporters. He was suspicious of his niece's death and subtly hinted that her husband might have had something to do with it. Careful not to accuse Charles outright, he mentioned his niece had died from poison, bichloride of mercury, a white, crystalline, and highly poisonous salt derived from mercury and chlorine. Mercury wasn't all that hard to come by. It had been used as a cure for all sorts of ailments, though mostly as a treatment for syphilis. When it came to mercury, it was common knowledge that the cure could be deadlier than the disease. Months or years later, mercury exposure often caused a variety of cancers. Mercury salt poisoning was easier and faster than the slippery liquid counterpart. The substance was so corrosive that it could burn through mouth and stomach tissue, loosening teeth and causing bleeding ulcers. Hunter told the press that Gertie's marriage had taken everyone in the family by surprise. No one had expected her to marry and thought she'd spend the rest of her life devoted to family. Her husband had come from nothing and had been well aware of the family fortune, approximately $2 million, which would amount to some $25 million today. The family insisted on sending the autopsy report and further tissue sampling to New York City and Alexander Gettler for further tests. And meanwhile, the press dug into the story. Gertie's family weren't the only ones suspicious of Charles. The trouble had started in August of 1923, when Gertie and Charles vacationed at the Westchester Country Club. The resort boasted grand hotels, spas, a golf course, and other amenities catering to the rich. 
It wasn't Gertie's favorite spot, but Charles had talked her into it. That week, Gertie fell ill, complaining of a pain in her side and shortness of breath. Charles called for a doctor, who diagnosed her with mild pneumonia. Dr. Meyer had come highly recommended by his wealthy clientele. Meyer also liked to say he was an amateur detective, and in this case, he instantly thought something was awry. Nothing he prescribed worked, and Gertie only grew sicker, developing a waxy complexion. Thinking the illness was unnatural, he barred Charles from seeing his wife without explaining why. The next time Charles saw his wife, she was dead. While the press dug into the story behind Gertie's death, Gettler was busy in the lab. He found traces of mercury in her kidneys. Between the death of his wife and the discovery of poison in her autopsy, Charles Webb was having a really bad time, and it was about to get worse. The family pointed to Gertie's recently updated will, which left everything, down to her last possession and penny, to her husband. Charles and his attorneys showed there was another will. Charles had insisted that he not inherit everything, but sadly she had been too ill to sign it. After a battery of tests, Gettler determined that Charles hadn't killed his wife. What he did find was plenty of pneumonia in her lungs and diseased kidneys stemming from a laxative prescribed to her by a Manhattan doctor. The prescription contained a milder form of mercury salt, but still enough to kill her. On October 21st of 1923, the Westchester Grand Jury examined the evidence Gettler provided and determined Charles was innocent. This time, Gettler slept at night knowing he'd saved an innocent man. Gertie's family insisted that Charles still owed them his wife's inheritance. Instead, Charles used some of the money to uphold his wife's wishes, establishing a park in honor of Gertie's mother, though he added his wife's name to the park as well. And then Charles cut ties with Gertie's family and lived out his days in peace. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmandMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.